What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on what will be the last episode of True Crime New England in 2023. Our holiday hiatus. It's here. Yay. Now, we say that because for most of you who listen, you know that around this time of year, we go on a little break where we go a few weeks without posting an episode. It's for us. It's for our mental health. It's for the holidays. It's for our sanity. But really, the truth is, we're still here in the background, working, recording, researching. We are the only people on our team, so we still got to put in the work. Yeah, so that means that if you guys message us, DM us, send us ideas, etc., etc., we will respond to you still. Of course. We are going to take this time to post case profiles on our Instagram and website, get caught up on those you know, still use the time productively, Mm -hmm. but also take some time for ourselves and take some time for you guys. Spend time with your families, whatever it is you celebrate. We hope that it's a wonderful time. Maybe we'll get some snow. Who knows? I'd love that. Uh, You guys all know I hate being warm, famously. And this is the perfect time of year for Liz because there's no warmth. (laughs) So I'm grateful and I'm excited. And, you know, I've noticed that every year so far we've expanded our hiatus just a little longer and a little longer but hey this is a lot of work and you know we don't want to burn ourselves out and we talk about a lot of terrible stuff so it's good for us it's very good for us and you know honestly it's ironic because we're talking about how tiring it is and sad and today's case is like so terrible it's devastating it's like I think the highest casualty amount we've ever talked about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very historic case. As you can tell by the title, it is a nightclub fire, Mm -hmm. which we did not mean to do this. But last year, our last episode of the previous year and before our holiday hiatus was also a nightclub fire. Indeed. We covered the station in Rhode Island. That one was really devastating, really horrific. Yes. And we did mention this one in that episode in that this one had more casualties, which was really hard to believe. Right. But here we are. Here we are. And man, is this tough. So if you guys are someone who does not like to listen to fire stories or are triggered by something like around that, I would avoid this because it's pretty brutal. There's a lot of details about fire code violations, you know, the tragedy within an event like this, like how in mere minutes, hundreds of lives can be lost when buildings aren't kept up to code or people are greedy and take away doors. Yeah. Yep. And then crowd crush situations too in a panic. That is one of my biggest fears. Mm -hmm. Just being out in a crowded area, concerts, especially Mm -hmm. 
I think it's one of the most terrifying things. Anything for me where I imagine myself not being able to breathe. Right. Really stresses me out. So if that is something too, that is not something you want to hear, that's okay. We'll see you next episode next year. That's all right. That's totally fine. But if you can stomach it, this episode is really fascinating. Thank you to Alexandra K, who suggested this to us via Instagram DMs. Thank you. And thank you, George S., who sent this in via our website submission tool. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. This is definitely one that's been on our list because it's, I mean, come on. It's a great case. Just so interesting to talk about and very widely known. And I had known about it myself, but I did not know the number was this high in terms of death. Yeah. It's intense. And it still remains one of the worst uh, fire casualties in the country as far as like nightclub and, you know, establishments go. So it's nuts. So definitely stick around, guys. And without further ado, today we will be covering the, the Coconut, Coconut Grove Nightclub Fire. Okay, Katie, for what is the last time in the great year of 2023? I don't know if I could really say that. What are your sources for today? Liz, I was hoping you would ask me this. You know, I'm unsure if I would. Not like me very much. We gotta start it off strong. We gotta end it strong. Mm. Wiki fuckingpedia. Absolutely. As well as bostonfirehistory.org. Sure. Archives.gov. Boston.com, Boston.gov, NFPA.org, which is a fire safety regulation legislation changes site that we used last time for the station nightclub fire as well, as well as coconutgrove.org. Wow. You loaded up. Yeah. So while Wikipedia is debated in legitimacy, it's a big boy. You got to have it. And the rest of my sources are pretty legit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, too, of, of course, naturally had Wikipedia. Thank God. Duh. I also had an article from the Smithsonian Magazine, bostonfirehistory.org, American Hauntings, interestingly enough. I also had a document from La Justia, if you can believe it. And I used a website called leaps.org, which basically was an article about how the fire led to some advancements in modern medicine. Awesome. Which was very interesting for me to read. Now, you guys, we all love it when I give a little history lesson at the beginning of these episodes. I know it. You love it. I love it. Let's get into just a little bit about the history of this club, of this night club. I know you guys are ready for it. If nothing, you get away an escape from your daily lives to listen to a podcast about history of buildings, right? Well, guys, today's history has a special place in our hearts, I think. The Coconut Grove Nightclub opened in 1927 on Piedmont Street in the Bay Village neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. It was not the Bay Village back then, but that is where it is now, like that area. The club was actually named after the very famous Coconut Grove nightclub in Los Angeles that was very popular at the time. And this was, of course, during one of the best times in America, Prohibition. 
where everyone was happy and not at all really, really mad and missing alcohol and doing illegal things to get their alcohol. The club came to fruition as an idea between two orchestra leaders, Mickey Alpert and Jock Renard. The nightclub was one of the most poppin' spots at the time, and it had been through some ups and downs in its 15-year history, you know, like most places. A lot of things were happening at throughout its history, though. Prohibition, the Great Depression, World War II. Like, it was a lot. So that's fair. It went up and down, but it maintained. Over the years, the nightclub became a speakeasy, and... This is because of some connections that Albert and Renard had. In a lot of the readings I found, it said that they had connections with something called mobsters. I don't know. I looked it up and I just kept finding synonyms for like friends, loyal brothers. Um, and then I realized what they, I was reading was members of the mob mobsters and i said man no wonder this place did so well because it was backed by our boys in fedoras <laughs> the mob supposedly allegedly katie you know i know we love the mob here at true crime new england we love the mob boston loves the mob that's a bold statement for me to say. I feel I'm speaking on behalf of the city of Boston <laughs> when I say we heart the mob. You know, you can speak on behalf of the podcast. Mm. I heart the mob. Mm. You heart the mob. Absolutely. And the club was a hangout sure. for members of the mob. I mean, family. Fa family. Members of the family. To hang out. When you're here, your family. At the Coconut Grove. <laughs> Little known fact, that was the Coconut Grove's tagline before Olive Garden was invented. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think that's that I made that up, but it would be a fun idea. Mickey Alpert and Jacques Renard happily opened their arms to the mob, and they took on the role of performing music with the house band. They were like, you know what? We're two orchestra leaders. What do we really even know about running the place? We don't know how to protect. No. You know, we're loyal, but not as loyal as you, the mob. Yeah. So you guys, you know business. We know music. This is going to be a happy partnership. Absolutely. Well said. The club was then owned by Charles King Solomon from 1931 to 1933 before he was shot in the men's bathroom because of his involvement with the mob. It's unfortunate when people are targeted due to their involvement with said groups. Now, you know, Boston Charlie King, as he was known, very unfortunate, but he was gunned down. So naturally, the club was passed on to not only, and again, we keep it in the family, it's the mob, it was passed on to Charles Solomon's lawyer, Barnett Barney Wolanski. Besties. Brotherhood. It doesn't matter. Blood. Water. Who cares? The mob is the mob is love is love. 
And Barney outwardly wanted the club to appear like it was mainstream and legit. He wanted the mob. He knew the mob was there. He loved the mob too. He was a lawyer for the mob, but he wanted it to seem legit. So he, you know, decorated it up, made it have this whole theme. But in the background, he said, hey, everyone, I got ties to the mob. And also, he was very good friends with the mayor at the time, Boston Mayor Maurice J. Tobin. But hey, you guys may recognize that name Tobin because there's a very famous bridge in Boston named after him. And this might not seem super important now, but this club owner was very good friends with the mayor at the time. So having the mayor on your side, being um, a part of the Brotherhood of the Mob, running this club during Prohibition and being able to serve alcohol. It all just kind of falls into place and everything is hoody doody, fun times, great, awesome. And, uh, you know, you can get away with a lot when you work for the mob and are in love with the mayor and can serve everyone alcohol. Barney ran a very tight ship. He hired teenagers to be busboys, waiters, and even bouncers because he knew that teenagers he could get for the low, like below minimum wage. They'll do anything for money. Mm-hmm. He realized that, you know, not that the mob is shady. No. But there were some shady people that frequented the club before the makeover. Sure. And he realized that the shady people might leave without paying. They might. Possibility, you know, dine and dash, even back in the 40s. So he started locking and concealing exits. And we'll talk more about this later. But some of the things that he was doing, he was walling off emergency exits with bricks. Concealing them behind, like, curtains, drapes, the coat check, deadbolting doors, boarding up windows. He was really determined to have there be one main entrance and one main exit which is as we know a wicked safety hazard and you can tell by the title of the episode this is going to be a problem yep the coconut grove went from a garage in a warehouse space to a sleazy shady mob hang but under the guidance of barney it turned into this hush hush dark, jazzy, classy nightclub. And technically it was a supper club. That was what the term was, but it's a nightclub. I don't think like technically the term nightclub like existed back then. Correct. But supper club is kind of cute. It developed a tropical theme with a roof that would open up to the night sky in the summer. So nice. I love that. Yeah. For 1942. That's crazy. Love it. The decor consisted of bamboo walls, satin canopies, heavy curtains and drapes around walls and doors, and the columns around the building were decorated to look like palm trees, and the lights were made to look like coconuts. Fun! By the late 30s and early 40s, The Grove, as it was nicknamed, was one of the most popular nightclubs in Boston. There was a restaurant inside, multiple dance floors, shows, music performances, There was a small stage for piano players in the basement, which was a separate but still attached room called the Melody Lounge. Nice. The wall coverings and all materials used, you know, satin drapes, luscious curtains, 
the palm tree fronds, the fake coconuts, mm. they all had been approved for ordinary ignition by the fire inspector, which is a series of tests to prove that these materials would be, you know, not super resistant, but at least somewhat resistant to smaller fire sources like cigarettes or matches mm. because this is the 40s now. So people are absolutely still smoking inside. Oh, for like 40 plus more years at least. <laughs> The decorative cloths from the drapes and satin canopies were treated with ammonium sulfate, which is a fire retardant. And they were put there, you know, decorating the place, sprayed with the stuff, fire inspector approved. Awesome. Great. What you're supposed to do is maintain the spraying of the ammonium sulfate on a regular basis. Sure. Because as we already established, the licensing and just how this place was run really does not seem too concerned with regular maintenance per fire safety protocols or really any safety protocols. Right. So they were not doing that. Right. Because this is now World War II, there were a lot of rations and wartime shortages of a lot of things. So many things. Chocolate, sugar, flour, milk, eggs, anything you could think of. Right. One of the things in very short supply was a refrigerant called Freon, And this is what air conditioners, fridges, and freezers all use. Mm -hmm. Freon could not be found. And if you could find it, it was in very short supply and very expensive. Right. So people had discovered that an alternative didn't work quite as well, kind of did the job. Not really kosher to be using, but, you know, it's the war. People are kind of taking shortcuts. Desperate. The nightclub especially was taking shortcuts. They were using a substance called methyl chloride in their air conditioners. Methyl chloride is a very flammable gas. Wonderful. Just wanted to make note of that before we set the scene of the night in question. And you know what? Scene set. Because, I mean, the title. We're foreshadowing quite heavily here. This brings us to the day of the fire, November 28th, 1942. The Grove was set to host a huge celebration party for the Boston College football team that night after one of their games, but the team lost to the College of the Holy Cross, Mm. so they canceled the celebration party because there was not really much to celebrate. Yeah, they were supposed to win because there were some scouts there to offer a bid at the 1943 like Sugar Bowl game, which Boston College had won the year before, so it was going to be like this whole big thing, and like, but then they lost, so it was like... Womp womp. Oh well. Mayor Tobin was also supposed to be at the Grove that night because he was a huge Boston College fan. They lost. He didn't go. Yeah, I don't blame him. Despite all of the plans that changed, a bunch of people were going to go to the Grove to see Arthur Blake, who was a famous entertainer that impersonated women like Betty Davis and Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm -mm. He was a big performer, going to a lot of nightclubs. I guess he was a really famous impersonator. Mm -hmm. So people are going to see him. Yep. The owner, Barney Walensky, usually liked to be at the club to oversee things and just kind of make sure that nobody's sneaking out without paying or taking down the brick walls. He was really into this idea that people would leave without paying. He was obsessed with this thought. Maybe it happened once and he was like, never again. Because he, bolting doors... Hiding doors? 
He's obsessed. He's obsessed. He was actually recovering from a heart attack in a private room at Mass General Hospital. Oh, good for him. So he was not there that night. Mm. The people that were there, however, piled into the club with over a thousand people crammed inside like sardines. Yep. The club's legal capacity was 460 people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And even so, yes, Boston College lost. The club was still popping. Like you said, we got this great performer who was very well known, especially later, because he led some great uh, movements with the LGBTQ plus community and like the entertainment community within that. He was great. There was also a celebrity there. His name was Buck Jones. He was like a well-known Casanova cowboy. He had starred in over 200 movies and he was on like a press junket tour across the country. He went and he had dinner that night at the Coconut Grove. He wasn't really feeling well. He didn't want to go, but his agents were like, go, this is good for you. So he went. So he was like a VIP. Everyone was really excited. He was at the lounge, enjoying a meal. Everything was fun. A lady named Goody Goddell was singing and playing the piano on the revolving stage in the middle. It was about Christmas time. Things were fun. It was light. It was just a good time. People were enjoying themselves. It was a Saturday night. And despite that loss, that football game, whatever, people were having a good time, even though it was packed, like really packed. People had to like twist and turn to get through the room, which is not so great. It was about 10, 15 p.m. that night when a bartender in the Melody Lounge noticed that there was a darkened section of the room, like a light had gone out. So, naturally, he put the uh, 16-year-old busboy, Stanley Tomaszewski, on the case. He said, Stanley, go fix that, you idiot, or whatever. I don't know, he was 16. He probably was like, you should be doing all my dirty work. I don't know. So the kid, he went over to the corner to find that what had happened was a young sailor was on a date and he and his date were getting, you know, touchy-feely. It was romantic. It was going very well. And so to offer some privacy to his girl, the sailor had reached up and in a gesture of intimacy, unscrewed the light bulb so he could kiss his date. Very cute. That's very cute and pure. Whatever. Great gesture. So Stanley, not really giving a shit about this privacy because he was a 16-year-old boy, was like, sorry, I've been given, I have orders, I gotta redo this light bulb. So he lit a match because, well, he was, it was the 40s, he had a matchbook in his pocket, undoubtedly. He also probably was a regular chain smoker. Whatever. He took out a match, he lit it, he was able to re-screw in the light bulb, and then as he was, this is all supposedly, right, because this happened, you know, almost, it was over 80 years ago now. He blew out the match, stomped on it, it was out, and then walked away. Here is where most people believe the fire began. Because a lot of patrons claim this is when they noticed the flames. And it started in this little area. Because all of a sudden, there was some ignition in the palm fronds on that like pillar or near the pillar where this sailor was with his date and very quickly just as it always is it spread 
Waiters and staff began immediately rushing to put out the fire, but it spread so quickly across the fake palm leaves all around the stage now. Mm-hmm. And out of desperation to keep the fire from spreading to the ceiling, which, if you recall, was covered in decadent satin fabric. Yeah. A waiter ripped down one of the sets of palm trees. And when he did this, he accidentally took down a plywood panel that was concealing an enclosed space above the false ceiling. Mm-hmm. Not up to par with building codes. Good old Barney didn't really care about that. No. But now, there's a false enclosed space. Okay, interesting. Mm. But the fire jumps to the ceiling. Of course. The whole place is a tinderbox. Of course. The fire spread to the fabric-draped ceiling, which burned at, of course, an alarming speed. The crowd of people were showered with bits of flame and burning pieces of fabric. Mm Mm-hmm. The flames are now spreading along the walls and most quickly across the ceiling. Right. And everyone is pushing, shoving, desperately trying to get out of the room, which is in the basement, Mm -hmm. and up the stairs into the main area of the lounge in the nightclub, out the doors. That's all they know how to do because there's one exit that they know of, and that's the front door on the first floor. And they're in the basement, in the Melody Lounge, where... The only way out is up those stairs. So naturally, when you're in a situation like that, the first thing you do is head for where you came in. Because in a panic state, that's your instinct. You're going to run to where you came from because that's immediately what you know. As people are fleeing up the stairs, a fireball went up the stairs through the entrance to the front of the club, mm-hmm. now causing the fire to spread through the rest of the grove, into the bar, down the hall, into the Broadway lounge, across the restaurant, dance floors, right where the orchestra mm. was just starting its evening show. Yeah. And everybody in the main area is blissfully unaware of the absolute fucking chaos that is taking place. It reminds me of the station nightclub fire a little bit because... A lot of the people thought that the initial fire was a part of the rock show. And they just were like, yeah, rock on. So these people were just sitting there like, oh, we're about to listen to the orchestra. Like really excited, drinking their little martini glasses, having a little cigarette. When all of a sudden, this mob of people is running up the stairs and a fireball appears. And chaos is fucking ensuing as they are just before their eyes watching a nightmare unfold. It's crazy reading the accounts of this. Now, of course, not only was the room filled with thick black smoke, everyone was running, crushing. The very common results we see of a fire is that everyone is panicking. Of course, And they're running and they're crushing each other. People are falling over and not getting back up because they can't. They're being crushed to the ground. They're being stomped on, stepped on, and left for dead. Because there's so much panic. The fun fact about the Coconut Grove that maybe made it kind of cool back then was that the front door was a revolving door. Neat, right? Well, in this situation, it really fucking wasn't. Because... The first few people were able to get out because they were able to spin the door and run, you know, whatever. But very quickly, it got jammed. And that pile of people on both sides very quickly jammed the door 
And because the fire, you know, oxygen is part of what makes a fire, the door was jammed like in a way that it was, you know, access to the outside. The fire felt that oxygen, got straight to that oxygen and essentially burned those people alive in the pile of those doors. Yeah. And this was a classic crowd crush situation where people are in such a blind panic. All your instincts are telling you is to get out. Yep. So people are shoving blindly, trampling each other, pushing, and there's nowhere to go. You're pushing people into other people. And now there's a pile forming just inside this revolving door. Yeah. People are getting crushed. People are pushing each other into the door. Mm -hmm. The door's not moving. There's resistance. And now there's fire. Yeah. Eventually, the door just blew open after a few minutes because there was so much pressure from the fire, from all the people and the buildup of bodies. And at that point, nobody was escaping through that door because it was just a six-foot-high pile of burning bodies. It was a mess. And by the time the firefighters got there, they had to like cut their way through. It was a nightmare. And then of course, not to mention there's the toxic fumes, the dark smoke. And, uh, oh yeah. Did we talk about the lack of emergency exits because this fucker decided to bolt all of them and hide the windows and he put a coat check in front of a door and all this stuff. Oh yeah, that's right. So people had like two exits. That's it. One of the survivor accounts I read was that, you know, the walls of the club, one of them had this big plate window and it was kind of like a foggy glass. You couldn't really see out of it. And so people are working together to smash this window to climb out of it, Mm -hmm. but it was boarded up. Yeah. But they didn't realize it was boarded up until after they broke the window. Yeah. So they're thinking, oh my God, this is so great. Teamwork. We're going to get out. This is our escape freedom. Mm -hmm. And then they break the glass And it's boarded up. Yeah. And they're stuck. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Later, they estimated that hundreds of lives would have been saved if that window was not boarded up. Yeah. Same thing with the way that the other exits were opening. So a lot of the staff members knew where the doors were, how to get there, going down these sneaky little corridors. And people were watching the staff make a beeline for the exit. And a lot of people were following them. Like, oh, shit, they work here. I bet you they know the way out. Right. The doors that were available, hidden, Mm -hmm. but somewhat available if you knew where to look, opened inward instead of outward, which is another thing that happened with the station nightclub fire. Yes. And firefighters said that if the doors had opened out, it wouldn't have become another obstacle and obstruction for people trying to get out, resulting in more chaos, crowd crush. If the doors had opened outward instead of inward... Over 300 people could have survived this. Yeah, easily. It was crazy. Something so simple as the direction of a door. So this station nightclub fire, it happened in the early 2000s. This is 50, 60 years later. That inward door thing, still happening. Mm -hmm. And it's a major, major, major fire safety hazard. And it was one state over? Come on. Bad, 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 bad. I look for that now in public places. Yep. Like the inward door. I do. Oh, yeah. From doing this. Same. Yeah. Ironically, just down the street, like maybe three blocks, there were some firefighters responding to like a car fire. And one of them kind of noticed like some smoke and they were like, oh, you know, whatever. And then they were like, wait, that's not coming from this car. 
And then they started seeing people running, asking, begging for help. And then all of a sudden, there they were, running to this massive fire where they were met with this absolute tragedy. Piles upon piles, even outside the building, were piles of bodies. Burning, crushed, stampeded on, trampled on, smoke inhalation, injuries just so bad. And like most of these situations, the fire was done so fast. It had burned through everything. It really only took five minutes from the start of the fire to reach all the way upstairs and expand to the rest of the building. Five minutes. Yeah. Start to consuming the entire building. Yeah. The fire chief immediately ordered it to be a three alarm fire by the time that the firefighters arrived. It became a four alarm fire, not 10 minutes later. And then it was officially declared a five alarm fire at 11.02. So not even a whole hour after the fire had like even started. So it really was evolving and evolving and evolving. And again, this is back when firefighting and, you know, there wasn't like great technology. So it was just becoming something they couldn't fight as easily. And then with the massive amounts of people, again, a thousand people were in that club. That's over double the capacity. There was nothing at that point anyone could do because of some decisions that were already made. Once firefighters got there, they had to drag so many bodies out just to get inside. Yeah. And everything was still smoldering hot. They were burning the shit out of their hands. Yeah. But still trying to save whoever they could. And mind you, this is late November when this is happening in New England, yeah. obviously. So as it's getting later at night, I mean, this started at 10.15. So it really, the temperature is plummeting. Yeah. It got so cold that the water being sprayed onto the fire was freezing on the cobblestone sidewalk. Oh, yeah. Making it really treacherous to walk, let alone run. Yeah. The fire hoses on the ground were freezing to the street. Yeah. Survivors were drenched in freezing water. Yeah. And several people died when they came out after breathing in the fumes and hot air and then coming out and breathing in the freezing cold air. Yeah. And one of the firefighters said they, quote, dropped like stones. Ugh. Once inside, bodies were found that were still sitting in their seats with drinks in their hands from smoke inhalation. Yeah. Just almost immediate. Yeah. Piles of bodies that were shoulder high in some places crowded the main entrance from the crowd crush. It's awful. And that's the sad part is, yes, ultimately all these people died as a result of the fire. But so many people died because of the crushing. The panic and the stampeding. It's terrifying. Massachusetts General Hospital and Boston City Hospital received the majority of the victims from the fire, about 83%. News trucks and taxis nearby the Grove were used as makeshift ambulances to transport victims. It's crazy. It was estimated that one casualty arrived at Boston City Hospital every 11 seconds, mm. which remains the greatest influx of patients to any regular civilian hospital in history. Which is very interesting. While this sounds incredibly chaotic and overwhelming for these hospitals, they were actually shockingly well prepared for a situation like this because of all the training they received in case of a major disaster as a result of the ongoing World War II. Right. And the East Coast was the prime target. 
Boston had actually carried out a citywide bombing assault drill only a week before this mm. with over 300 fake casualties. So the training was very fresh in everybody's mind. The fire also happened to break out during shift change at the hospitals. So double the staff were present and ready to go, not including the staff off duty and volunteers that hauled ass back there to help. Honestly, I've had an emergency happen at the hospital, like on shift change. And let me tell you, it does make all the difference. 1000%. Double the hands, double the eyes, double the people running around grabbing stuff. It's actually really helpful. Mm -hmm. So I bet that was a big difference. Plus the whole, you know, being super prepared for like a bombing by the Nazis. It's a pretty good way to be prepared for, you know, War, but also to be attacked by a fire in your own city. Yeah. Ironically. The majority of the patients sent to the hospital died en route due to severe burns and smoke inhalation. The standard triage system for mass casualty events did not exist at this time. So patients who were already dying and too far gone to be saved were given precious resources and time during assessments, care, intake, that could have gone to victims with less severe injuries that also could have survived as a result of the extra attention. Yeah. So nowadays we have like, if you're in a mass casualty situation, people are tagged certain colors. So like a black card means like you're already dead or you cannot be saved. So like, sorry, like that's it. So if you're alive and you're somehow conscious and you see that you're given a black tag, sorry pal like that's it for you i think most of those people are not alive already no usually it's like agonal breathing at end of life or crazy chest impalement yes head wounds yeah red is critical give them resources asap yellow is like yeah this is pretty bad but red goes first yep and green is usually walking wounded so walk your ass out of here so we can keep tagging other people because you're best off. That's people like with, I don't know, like physical, like maybe they broke their leg or their arm or they have like, they're bleeding from their, you know, their forearm or they have a black eye, like things that like, maybe they do have internal bleeding or maybe they have, you know, whatever, but outward, like you really have, triaging is very like, like, bam, bam, bam. Like, mm-hmm. you have to, like, really just look at it and be like, okay, this person is clearly dead. This person is stuck, pinned underneath a car. But if we lifted the car and was able to do this, we could get them to say, you know, that kind of thing. So, like, that was not a thing back then. Right. So, wasting resources on people who were already agonally breathing, that really was a big mistake. Not that they knew, but, like, that could have made a big difference. Yeah. Unfortunately. By the next morning, only 132 patients out of the 300 transported to Boston City Hospital were still alive, while at Mass General, 75 of the 114 victims had died, leaving just 39 surviving patients. Of the 444 burn victims hospitalized in total across Boston and surrounding Massachusetts hospitals after the fire, only 130 survived. Crazy stuff. One of the pros of this taking place during wartime was that the hospitals were stocked with blood and plasma Mm -hmm. in preparation for a mass casualty event. Mass General had actually started one of the first blood banks in the area just months before this. And not really a fun fact, but an interesting fact is that the volume of plasma used 
in treating victims from the fire was more than the amount of plasma used during Pearl Harbor. In the days after the fire, over 1,200 people stepped up and donated over 3,800 units of blood to refill the bank. That's amazing. That is really incredible. What a great... Obviously, this is a tragedy, but some good things do come of it, and we'll talk about some of those, but a great sense of community right there. That's wonderful. All of the hospitals did not charge any of the patients for treatment. Lovely. You would not get that in today's America. No, they'd be like... Why were you at this fire, you idiot? Ten billion, please, right now. Now, because this is Boston, some of the most amazing minds in medicine are either at these hospitals mm. or nearby at, say, Harvard Medical School. Sure. And they have a shit ton of burn victims. Patients with smoke inhalation. Patients in respiratory distress. Patients with crazy injuries from being crushed and trampled. So a lot of the incredible advancements to medicine for burn victims, especially, mm. were done as a result of this fire or created as kind of a trial and error process for victims of the fire. Mm -hmm. One of the main ones being the first use of penicillin to treat burn-related infections. Because mm -hmm. as we know, the skin is our major barrier to the outside world. And if your skin is a gaping open wound, that's a really solid way to get an infection. So burn victims, especially, their immune systems are shot. Everything is fried, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively, as awful as that is. Right. But they're very prone to infections. Mm -hmm. So the first use of penicillin was as a result of this event. I thought that was crazy. I didn't know that. I, I mean, most... If you went to any kind of medical training, so like nursing school, even like medical, even like biology, even microbiology, a whole bunch of like any sciences, you know about Alexander Fleming and the discovery of penicillin. And for a while it was very like hush hush because they didn't really believe in it, but they really, it was starting to kind of behind the scenes be shown to be very effective. And then when this happened and all of these patients were coming with these deep, deep burns, and they were so vulnerable because their protection was fried, like you said. They tried penicillin, and the amount of people who survived because of it was astronomical. In they've never gone back. Penicillin is a great tool, and of course, a lot of people are allergic to penicillin, and because of that, a lot of other antibiotics have been made from it, and that's fine, and you know, there's a lot of options, but penicillin is one of the greatest inventions, discoveries ever. It is the one of the best modern medicine tools ever. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely proven here with this coconut grove fire because it saved a lot of lives. It saved a lot of lives. In fact, they sent over from the New Jersey plant it was being made in 32 liters of penicillin. Just a, like within a few days after. And uh, most of the people who were like dead upon arrival were like gone and they were treating people who had severe burns but were like pulling through and like doing you know okay also the patients at boston city about 76 of them received a new drug at the time called sulfadiazine which was about approved at that point for like a year it was another kind of like antibiotic it was um actually like not on the same level of penicillin, but it was another newer drug. And that also ended up saving a lot of lives. And 
So there was not only penicillin, but this other drug. And not only were they doing new forms of like skin grafts, they were doing more techniques for um, wound debridement, which is very important for when you have burns. So a lot of times like for burn victims, it's a very painful recovery because they are constantly getting their wounds debrided, which means essentially like picked at and washed out and poked and prodded. And it's just constant pain over and over and over again. It's a terrible, terrible process. Also, as a part of this tragedy, a new method for treating burns was created. So there was this old process using chemicals and dyes and tannic acid, which was used for cleaning the wound. So basically they would take these dyes and this tannic acid and they would put it over the wounds and it would form this like scab, almost like leather over the burns. The only thing with that, well, it helped to prevent against infection because it was like this protection was that in order to do it, they had to scrub the wounds, which was so painful. Katie, you just made the worst, like, cringe face. Like, Uh right? Isn't that awful? And so this plastic surgeon at Mass General was like, this is the worst. Like, no way. And so he came up with this new thing that was so simple. He simply took gauze, and at first he used petroleum jelly, covered that gauze, covered it in petroleum jelly, put it over the burns. That was it. And it saved a lot of people, A, from pain, because they weren't being scrubbed down, but it also helped promote hydration of the skin, because a lot of people with burns, a big issue, not only infection, is loss of fluid. Because once you're burning your skin, you're all your fluids, that's where a lot of your fluid is. It's going right out with the skin. So, he came up with that, and then eventually, shortly after that, they were using plasma instead of petroleum jelly, which is a natural product, of course. And so then it was just, from there, oh, forget it. It was like they had come up with unicorns. Like, it was the best thing. And they were making huge advancements in such short amount of time with these patients. And it seemed really risky because they were suffering. And it was all on the fly. And it was during the war. But they ended up making a huge difference. Yeah. And a lot of the things that they discovered treating patients are still used for burn victims to this day. Absolutely. It's wonderful. 490 people ended up dying as a result of this fire, which I think is atrocious, just that sheer number. But also thinking back that the club's legal capacity was 460 people. Mm -hmm. So explain to me how more people died. Than than what was allowed. Exactly. According to the Coconut Grove Memorial Committee, they were 237 male patrons, 227 female patrons, 17 employees, six entertainers, two rescue workers, and a non-employee sales girl for war bonds. Wow. And yes, I know you guys are curious. One of the casualties was indeed Buck Jones, the celebrity cowboy who did not want to be there that night. He had a head cold. He did not want to go to dinner. Um, he was found slumped over under his table. There was a rumor going around for a while that he had actually survived the fire and then went back in to save some other celebrity. It was like a producer or something. Yeah, his agent, actually. Yeah, and then he ended up dying as a result. But that story is not... I think they ultimately debunked that because he was just found 
slumped over, I think ultimately dead of smoke inhalation. Yeah, and significant burns. Yeah, under his table, essentially, which is, of course, very unfortunate. So that's terrible. And then that's just one of the notable deaths because he was the celebrity. Yeah, his agent actually ended up surviving. Which is so sad. So awful. Overall, a lot of the Coconut Grove staff survived, yeah. which was mostly because of their knowledge of the layout and knowing where the exits were. Mm-hmm. What do you know? Huh. Staff had managed to unlock a double door in the main dining room that helped a ton of people escape. Nice. Most of the band was able to escape backstage through a door they had to ram open. Mm-hmm. Mickey Alpert, one of the original owners and musician, got out of a basement window and he helped several other people out of the building as well. Jeanette Lazzoni, who was a cashier at the club, the entertainer Goody Goodell, three bartenders, other employees, and customers in the Melody Lounge, where the fire initially started, all escaped into the kitchen and then outside. Mm. One of the bartenders, Daniel Weiss, survived by soaking a cloth napkin in water and holding it over his face to help with smoke inhalation as he escaped. Mm. Five people survived by shutting themselves in the walk-in refrigerator. Quick thinking, would have never thought of it. Surprised it worked. They were actually rescued, like, 15 minutes later. They probably weren't even that cold. No. Like, thank God it worked out in their favor. Who knows how long it could have taken for someone to realize they were there. Right. Clifford Johnson, a member of the Coast Guard, ran inside the building four separate times to try and find his date, Mm. who he was there with and had actually escaped safely earlier. Yeah. He ended up sustaining third-degree burns on over 55% of his body. Yeah. He miraculously survived and still to this day is the most severely burned person to have survived his injuries. Wow. He spent 21 months in the hospital and ended up marrying his nurse. I kind of was hoping he'd marry his date. That's what I was thinking. But you know what? As a nurse, that's kind of (laughs) cute. Don't forget the part where he later died in a fiery car accident. He later died in a fiery car accident years later. It's unfortunate, but... Come on. I know. Sad. So, of course, a fire of any major scale is going to go through an investigation. As it should. But this one, like, people were pulling up to the fire and they're like, yeah, once this bad boy is done burning, we are starting the investigation. It was, like, less than 12 hours. Yeah. And, uh, obviously the big question was what started it? And then there was more questions like, who was responsible, if anyone? Why did it get so bad so fast? And was there a reason why so many people died and how could it have been prevented? Well, we kind of answered most of those questions, talking about um, our friend Barney and his stingy, greedy alterations to the club. You know, the hidden doors. The bolted doors, the boarded up windows, you know, just in case people wanted to leave without paying, which clearly the club was doing just fine if over a thousand people were there that night. I think he probably was okay. Also, he had some ties to our very rich friends at the mob who are friendly, loyal, will give money at the drop of a hat. So he had nothing to worry about, except now he did because... He was the center of the investigation because um, he should have been. One of the things they found with the investigation is that the Grove had not obtained any licenses for operation for several years. Mm. They didn't have any liquor licenses. Nope. 
This was after the prohibition. Yeah, the prohibition had ended. People could have alcohol. Have it. In fact, please, take the alcohol because everyone's sad. It's World War II. We're all dying. Like, take the, take the alcohol. So, right at the top of the episode, we had mentioned that Inside the Grove was its own restaurant. They didn't have food safety permits. Well, what's that? Why would you need that? I don't need that. Well, that's fine. 16-year-old Stanny Tomaszewski, the busboy who something started the fire, wasn't even supposed to be working there in the first place as he was 16 years old and underage. Yeah. The Broadway Lounge, one of the lounges off of the main area of the Grove, had also been remodeled and was done so with unlicensed contractors nice. and without any building permits. Good. Huh. Safe. Good. And a lot of this could happen and wasn't really questioned or investigated. You know, the proper authorities weren't showing up to do inspections because Barney's BFF, the mayor, was making sure that this nightclub stayed open for his bestie. Yeah. And saying, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's all up to par. You know, health, food inspector, city inspection, building permit inspector. You did bypass the yeah. go to the bars down the street yeah he probably signed them all himself absolutely <laughs> it's a little shady stanley testified at the inquiry and was found not responsible as he had nothing to do with the major safety code violations or the flammable decorations that caused the fire to spread rapidly and out of control mm. regardless of the outcome of the inquiry stanley was still blamed for the fire by a lot of his friends and pretty much pointed at like, yeah. people were pointing fingers at him in the community for the rest of his life. Which is unfortunate. Yeah, and he really, he endured so much guilt, survivor's guilt, nonetheless. Yes. Yeah. And people were blaming him. Like, you know, if you hadn't lit that match, and we'll talk about it in a little while, but we generally, still to this day, don't know the exact cause of the fire. Right. So we don't know. It could have been Stanley, or it could have totally not been him. Could have, yeah, could have been anything. Yeah. Boston Fire Department determined that there was no official conclusion, but they did say that the rapid spread of the fire was in part due to a buildup of carbon monoxide gas in the enclosed space above the false ceiling. Mm. You know, when the fire first started and it's igniting these palm fronds yeah. and the staff are trying to put it out and they're like, oh shit, we can't let it get to the ceiling. And one of the guys pulled down a bunch of the palm fronds and pulled down a panel and exposed the false ceiling and the space above it. Mm -hmm. There was a shit ton of trapped carbon monoxide up there. Yeah. So when he pulled it down, it released the carbon monoxide and they think that's what caused the fireball. Yeah. So scary. The report also stated that the numerous fire safety code violations, flammable materials, and door designs that opened inward rather than outwards, as we discussed, mm. contributed to the large loss of life. Yeah, absolutely. In the 1990s, over 50 years after the fire, former Boston firefighter and researcher Charles Kenny discovered that the highly flammable gas refrigerant, methyl chloride, mm. had been used as a substitute for Freon in their air conditioners. Mm. He discovered that the Melody Lounge, where the fire started, mm. had the air conditioning units that were serviced since the war started and would have, without a doubt, had the methyl chloride. Yeah. Charles Kenny feels that the start of the fire was behind the palm tree above the light fixture, more in the wall, mm. and was caused by the methyl chloride igniting from a spark from faulty wiring. 
Yikes. So it was really the perfect storm. The match might have caused the spark. Yeah. But ultimately, the buildup of methyl chloride, mm-hmm. he thinks, yeah. is what caused it to spread so out of control. Yeah. Methyl chloride combustion causes a certain flame color, smell, and causes faster and more severe smoke inhalation symptoms. So it does add up in some parts of the fire. Mm, right. The one part where it doesn't add up is that the gas is almost two times as dense as air. Mm-hmm. So while it totally could have caused the fire to spread as fast as it did, a lot of people feel like it wouldn't have been able to jump to the ceiling because of how heavy the gas is in right. comparison to air. Right. Transcripts of survivor and witness testimonies and interviews from after the fire were not released until 2012. So such a long time. Crazy. 70 years. Stanley Tomaszewski, Morris Levy, Joyce Spector, David Frushling, and Jeanette Lanzoni all provided accounts of how the fire started with the palm decoration mm-hmm. and then the ceiling in the Melody Lounge. Right. A few people described the start of the fire as a flash. Mm-hmm. The flame jumped across the ceiling and it was described as being a faint blue color that was followed by brighter flames, mm-hmm. which would be consistent with methyl chloride. Sure. I thought this was super interesting. A witness, Roland Sousa, he survived the fire. Mm -hmm. He said that, you know, he watched the fire start and he was sitting there very calmly, Mm -hmm. like finishing his drink, enjoying the piano, because he said that he was a regular at Mm -hmm. the Melody Lounge, like easily every weekend, if not more. Right. And he said that he had seen the palm tree decorations catch on fire before. Right. Multiple times. Right. But that every time the staff were able to put it out really quickly. Right. So this statement in particular also backs a theory about the methyl chloride causing everything to move so quickly. Yeah. Which wouldn't place the blame on Stanley. Right. I don't think the blame should be placed on Stanley anyway. Poor guy. I know who the blame should be placed on. Oh, could it be Barney? Well, good thing, because uh, eventually Barney was actually convicted on 19 counts of manslaughter. 19 victims were selected at random to kind of represent the dead, which I don't know how I feel about that, honestly. Like, I feel bad for those who weren't represented, you know? But, and why 19? I don't know. Right. Very random. But I guess it's all the same. And that was... All based on him allowing the club to run while it was in violation of all of these standards. In 1943, he was sentenced to 12 to 15 years in prison. But don't you worry, guys. Because our friend Barney served not even a total of four years in prison before his friend, Mayor Tobin, who was now the governor of Massachusetts, pardoned him. Now, you kind of have to have some, I I do feel a little bit, because it was not super long after he got out of jail that he died of cancer. And he's quoted as saying that he wishes he died in the fire that night. And I'm sure he felt very guilty. And when you're making those greedy decisions, I'm sure he did not think it was going to end in this tragic, tragic way. But it's as a result of these decisions that nearly 500 people died. And it's extra fucked up that he was going to be at the club that night. Mm -hmm. The mayor was too. The mayor was almost burnt to a crisp. Right. But Barney himself, if you recall, was at Mass General in his own private hospital room recovering from a heart attack. Right. And he was in his private hospital room as these burnt bodies 
people in respiratory distress and respiratory failure from smoke inhalation are being carted in mm. a body every 11 seconds. Yeah. And I bet he was so mad his nurses weren't coming in to take care of him. Mm. Like, um, nurse. I imagine if there was call bells, he'd be like pressing the buzzer. Like, I asked for a popsicle 30 minutes ago and my nurses are gone. Oh, there was a fire. I don't care. I Grape was my pop- I That's what I wanted. And I still haven't gotten it. And Where are my ice chips? Yeah, damn it. Literally. And I, like, as people are being shuttled in from his own club, literally burnt to a crisp, I can imagine that happening. Mm-hmm. In the year after the fire, Massachusetts and multiple other states enacted laws for public establishments that banned flammable decorations and inward swinging exit doors. Good. Part of the legislation passed required exit signs to be visible at all times with their own sources of electricity to ensure that they stayed on during power outages. Nice. And they had to have special bulbs that allowed them to be visible even in the thickest smoke. That's awesome. There were also requirements that revolving doors needed regular outward opening doors next to them. Yes. Or that in the event of a crowd crush situation, they had to fold flat with enough force. Interesting. After the Coconut Grove complex was torn down in 1944, the street maps almost completely changed and the area was used as mainly a parking lot for a very long time. I believe it's now condos, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. In 1993, the Bay Village Neighborhood Association installed a memorial plaque in the sidewalk that was made by Anthony P. Mara, who was the youngest survivor of the Coconut Grove fire. Oh. It stated, quote, in memory of the more than 490 people who died in the Coconut Grove fire on November 28th, 1942. As a result of that terrible tragedy, major changes were made in the fire codes and improvements in the treatment of burn victims, not only in Boston, but across the nation. Phoenix out of the ashes. Oh, the plaque had to be moved several times partly because of vandalism, unfortunately, partly because of, like, city zoning and construction. Yeah, yeah. But there's a committee working on making a permanent memorial, and they're actually supposed to meet on the 26th of November, which is ahead of time when we're recording this, mm-hmm. but will have since passed when this episode comes out. The Coconut Grove Fire is, to this day, the deadliest event in Boston's history, the worst nightclub fire in history, and the second deadliest single-building fire in American history. It's crazy. The 1903 Iroquois Theater Fire in Chicago had a higher death toll of 602, but this was years beforehand. Mm. It was only two years after the Rhythm Club Fire in Mississippi in 1940, which had killed 209 people. Two people who survived the Coconut Grove Fire are, as far as we can tell, still alive to this day. Wow. Robert Shumway and Joyce Spector, who were both 18 years old at the time of the fire. Yeah. The cause of the fire itself has never officially been determined. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Guys, I couldn't think of a better, more terrible way to end our 2023 True Crime New England journey. Don't you agree, Katie? I agree. I agree. This was a really horrific case, but it was so full of information and just... Massive. It's a huge part of New England history. Absolutely. And a lot of great things came from it, which is unfortunate that a lot of people had to die. But fire safety codes, the use of penicillin is incredible. You know, and there's also been, you know, burn treatment advancements. That's amazing. So it's really unfortunate. But man, we learned a lot. And 
those victims, you know, may they rest in peace, the poor, poor people. Guys, thank you for being here with us for the year of 2023 and all those before, even all the way back to 1942. Just kidding. But thank you guys for listening. We are so appreciative. We want to hear from you. What has been your favorite case this year? What are some memories that you like from True Crime New England from the year 2023? Please let us know. You can find us on Instagram at True Crime Any. All our case. Or you can send us an email at truecrimeny at gmail.com. We, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. You can go to our contact page. And use our handy-dandy submission tool to send us your thoughts on this case, other cases we've covered, especially this year. If you're feeling really crazy, you could go back to a year ago-ish from when this episode comes out and listen to the Station Nightclub Fire or any of our other episodes. You know, our holiday hiatus is a great time to catch up on old episodes, re-listen, stop our Instagram, our website. We're going to be making some changes to the website, just kind of updating a couple things. But even though you will not be hearing our lovely voices for the next month or so, we hope you guys have a lovely holiday, a lovely winter, whatever you guys celebrate, if anything at all. And we'll see you guys next year. We will see you guys in 2024 and take care of yourselves. Hell yeah. Goodbye. Bye.